Hey there, Super Sober Heroes. It's your host, Sober Steve, the podcast guy. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a brief moment to ask for your help to shape the future of gay A. Over the years, this podcast has grown and evolved as I've grown in my sobriety. And recently, I've been investing wild amounts of time, money, and energy to find ways to level up this podcast so it can get heard by the people who need to hear it. I want to take a brief moment to check in with all of you, though, to see what you love about the current show and what could be better as I'm growing and moving forward. In the show notes is a three to five minute survey for you to complete. I kindly ask that you pause this episode and take the time to complete it if you haven't already. You are kind enough to give me 20 to 40 minutes of your time each week when you listen to these episodes, and I want to make sure it's time well spent. So please let your voice be heard. Thanks, SoberPod, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gay A, a podcast about sobriety for the LGBT plus community and our allies. I'm your host, Steve Bennett-Martin. I am an alcoholic and addict, and I am grateful for the sexual wellness workshop I'm working on and planning. As of this recording, I am 813 days sober, and today we are welcoming a guest to share their experience, wisdom, and hope with you. This writer and speaker hails from Brighton, and when they aren't enjoying the gym, travel, and reptiles, they are working on the release of their memoir, Smashed, Not Wasted. Welcome to the show, Sam Thomas. Thank you for having me. Yes, and I got to know you a little bit just researching online, but why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Well, as you mentioned, I'm many things. I'm a writer, but I'm also in recovery from alcohol addiction, just alcohol addiction, a history of drugs or smoking. I always lose count now. I think I'm 45 months sober, so not far off four years. Long story cut short, I didn't drink until I was 22. I drank only a couple of times when I was 16, hated it. My first boyfriend didn't drink, so I didn't start drinking until I was 22. And interestingly, I was tricked into drinking by my best friend at the time, and uh, inverted commas, best friend. And uh, anyway, he was alcohol dependent, still is. And it's uh, safe to say, I think he just couldn't stand the fact that I wasn't drinking anymore. And it wasn't really cool back in the times, back then. This is in the early 2000s, so 2004, 5, 6, I think. Really uncool not to drink, not like these days where I think Generation Z sort of embraced sobriety and clean living, etc. So anyway, I was tricked into that. And from that point onwards, I just decided to keep drinking. He wasn't forcing me to drink every time. It was only that first time. I, I drank Sambuca and Coke because it had my name on it. <laughs> and then swapped for wine, rosé wine, you know, tried everything. So it kind of went in at the deep end. But by the time I was 30, I was in a detox rehab. So start drinking at 22, rehab by 30. So I think you can see how, well, just how savage alcohol addiction is and how progressive it also is over that period of time. A lot of things happened, of course, in that time. My mother died a year after I started drinking. There's no, it goes without saying, doesn't it? That was a significant sort of contributing reason, such trigger. I was running a charity for about 10 years for men with eating disorders it was full on. I was doing all sorts of extraordinary things throughout my 20s, speaking at all these major events and media appearances, running support groups, doing funding bids and grant uh, and reports and dealing with trustees, that, you know, who are the, we ran the charity on the board. It was a lot of things and it was a lot of pressure. And I kind of just fell into that very early in my life and my career. It was a bit of an accident, really. So, and I often joke now, it's kind of like a fallen Disney star because I had to have this sort of clean image in running a charity. And I think there was always this rebellious side of me trying to get out, I suppose. So I think that kind of manifested in all sorts of different ways and through the drinking. But, you know, I've told this story quite a few times now, and I think coming up to four years sober, I've had a lot of time to reflect on that and understand 
my journey, really. Yeah. I mean, what changed that went from your drinking and your rehab stint to your recovery? Well, that's an interesting question, actually, because I decided to stop drinking, abruptly stop drinking. I go cold turkey when I was, how old was I? 29, I think it was. And I just fell out in the habit of going to the gym. That was one of the safeguards, I suppose, looking back on it now. If I went to the gym, which I did religiously, still do now, but particularly when I was in my 20s, the minute I started going to the gym, I drank more and not just drank at night, but drank during the day as well for the first time. So you can imagine just 24 hours of drinking pretty much you know over a period of time meant that I was drinking you know four bottles of wine easily in a 24-hour period stopped drinking had severe withdrawal symptoms however I didn't notice withdrawal and I happened to be on a tube in London on the surf line going to a meeting of course didn't get there because I'd fell well managed to get off the tube went off over the road to a coffee shop and it was just fortunate that there I mean the barrister was very concerned first of all but when I sat down with a drink of water which I was spitting everywhere because of the shakes and things but anyway there was an off-duty nurse and she came to attend me next minute I was in an ambulance next minute I was in hospital but unfortunately when I was in hospital it really wasn't clear what was wrong with me and of course alcohol withdrawal does not come up in blood tests it might come from your liver function that's probably the only clue and cholesterol maybe but I had a similar incident about a month later. It was Brighton Pride, where I am, the world-famous Brighton Pride. I did not go out, so I didn't have any wine, didn't drink for two days. Similar incident happened back in hospital. No idea why. The doctor assumed that it might be HIV, which it wasn't. And then I think it must have been about three months later, because it was over about a five-month period. You know, I went into hospital for a mental health crisis this time. And whilst I was there, I was something like three and a half times over the limits. I don't know if your limits are different to ours in the States, but it was quite a lot, to say the least. The scary thing was I was coherent. I could stand. I was walking in a straight line, you know, all the telltale signs of alcohol dependency. So in other words, I was functioning perfectly well whilst being severely over the limit. So it was then when it became apparent, the doctor, you know, thought, "Mm, you know, two past admissions, suspiciously like alcohol withdrawal. He's well and truly over the limit and functioning. It's not rocket science to work out what's going on here. And that's when, through talking to the mental health professionals and and the drug and alcohol team in the hospital, they said, you need to detox. And that I, didn't, no, I had no idea what that meant. No idea. Of course, I've had a detox. is when people eat wheatgrass and things for a week, but not this sort of a detox. And I was so clueless around addiction, you know what I mean? Even though I've been surrounded by people that clearly had addiction issues, I haven't really sort of investigated in that. My life and my world was just absorbed into eating disorders because that was my history when I was growing up. I had bulimia at the ages of 13 to 21. I spent my life running a charity focused on that. So a lot of things were just not on my radar and addiction was one of them. And I went to detox rehab about three months later, very begrudgingly. You know, I wasn't going sort of willingly necessarily. I sort of, I'll go just for the performance of it. And I was so naive because I thought it was an opportunity to reset so in other words, if I get detoxed, I can start drinking again like a normal person. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So that is where I was coming from. I, was, I had no idea. And uh, yeah, and I when I was in, in rehab, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system because it was kind of like the underclass of society, so to speak. You know what I mean? I loved it in a weird sort of way because I think people were just so sort of damaged, a bit like me, but also incredibly resilient as well. People from prison, people, mothers that had their kids taken away from them you know what I mean it was kind of the marginalized and the disadvantaged or disenfranchised even the people of society do you know what I mean it was so I found my people 
so to speak, in rehab. So I did learn a few things whilst I was there. But of course, it goes without saying I did relapse six hours after a nine day admission. And I did leave a day early because I was quite determined to get back to work and also get back to drinking. I think it's safe to say. So and that is when really I think people really began to think, oh, so it must be alcohol dependent things. So I think at the time, only a very limited number of people knew about this, by the way. But at the time, I think a lot of people thought, oh, maybe this is a bit of a drinking problem that Sam could just, I don't know, do dry January or something. That sort of attitude. But of course, when they relapsed, I think everybody quite quickly realised that this was a serious problem. Yeah. And what changed the second time around when now you're 45 months in sober? Oh, not the second time. We were talking about the fourth, fifth the time, fourth I think. Third. I was in psychiatric hospital a year later. I left my charity in a very dramatic way. I kind of did what Jerry Halliwell did back in the days. I left the band, realising I was the band. And uh, I went straight into psychiatric hospital. It was as dramatic. I had an argument with the trustees, left, went into hospital, then referred to moved on to psychiatric hospital. So I was there for uh, 10 days or something, had a detox there. Interestingly, I didn't drink for about six months after that, and that was in the summer of 2018. My situation had changed quite dramatically. I was working, then not working. Then I was starting to get into debt for the first time, so I wasn't earning anything and all sorts of things. Do you know what I mean? It was all pretty scary, really. We're not looking at it now. But I did manage this sobriety despite the challenges that I was suddenly faced with. And I look back on that period now, and I think I kind of realised that was kind of my dress rehearsal, if you like, of what life, or the pilot, if you like, you know, of what life might be like sober when I was well and truly ready to take it on. Guess that's saying I did relapse when I was in psychiatric hospital, would you believe? Uh, six months later after the first admission quite rebellious drinking in hospital and of course I got kicked out and then went back in and then went back in I think it was like four months after that I think I remember I lose track of the, the timeline but in the space of a year basically I was in and out of psychiatric hospital and I still continued drinking there was no sort of you know as far as I was concerned I was in full-blown sort of rebellion mode very sort of resentful I suppose about things that had happened in my work with the charity, things about my past with my dad, who was also alcohol dependent. So there's all sorts of things that I just hadn't really had an opportunity to address yet, I think it's safe to say. And uh, anyway, continue drinking. I think the only way I can explain it now is that a series has suddenly sort of happened. And I think one of the things that I'd realised is that actually I started writing, I started coming back to the gym, Although it was a bit hopeless trying to go back to the gym whilst I was drinking, I realised to myself that I had to start drinking, basically. You know what I mean? Had really bad withdrawal symptoms. I had hallucinations, you know, bats and spiders and all sorts of weird and wonderful things, cramps and a lot of the classic sort of DT-type symptoms. It's pretty scary, I have to say, because I was just out of it for, uh, it felt like days, and it probably was days. And in the end, I just went into hospital and just said I need to detox, just a general hospital. And... You know, I, they had this sort of, I don't know what they call it, but like a, a, a measuring tool about how severe your alcohol withdrawals are. I scored very highly, which is no surprise. And they said, you really need to detox. I said, yes, I've been here before several times. The big difference this time is that I wanted to detox. Really interestingly, and this only occurred to me recently when I was writing an article, it was the same week that the very first cases of COVID were happening in Wuhan. This is in November 2017. And do you know what, 2019 even, and the very last hallucination I had was bats. And if you think about it, it was a bat disease. So I don't know, that is just really weird. So I detoxed in during that week. I had no idea there was a pandemic around the corner. So the timing was absolutely crucial because there's no way they would have got through lockdowns and the whole pandemic with the severe withdrawals that I was experiencing. So yeah, the timing was everything. And from that point onwards, I just never looked back. And I think 
two things about that. One is that I think I was saying to someone earlier today, funny enough, I think, and I'd almost forgotten this, that I think the shame that I thought I was carrying at that time was shame that was projected onto me by other people. And I think as gay men, I think we've kind of well-trained in how to deal with shame or the fear of shame and persecution and all the things that related to that. So I think once I made that distinction, I thought, no, even if it's their shame of me, that's not my shame to own, F off, basically, whoever it was. And I think once I've made that very clear in my mind, that sort of was a huge load thrown off my back that shouldn't have been there in the first place. I had to sort of not only make lifestyle changes, but also detox from the substance but also detox from certain people as well there were certain people around me that family for instance that their dysfunctional behaviors had impacted on me and i sort of mirrored that behavior the whole transactional slash generational trauma sort of model if you like i think we're probably most most of us are familiar with that so once i sort of made those sorts of decisions that i can't speak to my dad not forever but you know what i mean just for as long as needed you know not just my dad but other people as well i was on my way so I think those two things probably were related actually to shame and just sort of that toxic behaviour that, that clearly had, I sort of absorbed, if you like, and sort of it manifested through the, the addiction. Yeah, I can certainly relate. I know that shame with alcoholics, shame with drugs, shame with queerness. We deal with so much shame. How would you say your relationship with the queer community has changed in your recovery? Well, just on that note of shame, so I think I, I've often said that I think the only thing that's consistent is that I was shameless in my alcoholism, as I was shameless in my recovery. You know what I mean? I think it's probably the only thing that's continued the same. But in relation, it's really another interesting question that I remember today, actually, someone else asked me a similar question, that I'd actually, one of the reasons why I think I hesitated to sort of take detoxing and recovery seriously back in the day, whenever that was, no, 2017, I live in Gay Brighton, which was once considered the gay capital of Europe, but the biggest gay pride is full of gays, I think, so to say, and everybody into the LGBT sort of alphabet, so to speak. A lot of people clearly had issues with drugs and alcohol. I couldn't think of anybody that didn't, to be honest. But nobody had done anything about it. Nobody sort of detoxed, nobody had been to rehab, nobody sort of engaged in any recovery programs. There was nobody that I could think of. So in my head, I think it was just a subconscious thing that it couldn't be done. You know what I mean? Nobody's sort of done recovery before in my vast network. Then what's the point? You know what I mean? You know, and I think also when I sort of did sort of engage in recovery a few years later in 2019, I think a lot of people sort of were engaged in recovery for the first time around then, certainly during the early stages of the pandemic. So since then, there's been a lot of people that I've met, whole groups that have been formed even that are for gay men in sobriety slash recovery. So I realise now they're always around. It's just that they clearly were in the underground, so to speak, invisible, undetected. They were always around. And so since then, I think I've changed my view that actually clearly it can be done. And I think also that sort of created sort of subconscious sort of need within me to sort of speak about my experience, knowing that there was no one else like me that I could see or hear at the time. So I think that was a very subconscious thing as well. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know what I mean? It's just one of those things that I think over time, my point of view would have been very negative if I think about GBT sort of visibility in terms of sobriety slash recovery. Whereas now, I think there's been a massive shift in, in let's say, a lot of individuals that are known as what are the groups that have been formed. There's a group here called Tonic in Brighton that didn't exist before. Yeah. Just to give you one example. So, yeah, we've always been around. Yeah, I, I love the the visibility that we're seeing with the queer recovery and sober community. What does your recovery look like today? 
I think it changes every day, to be honest. Uh, I think I'm fairly consistent with a lot of things. You know, I'm quite anally retentive, whatever the word is, you know, sort of disciplined. And I go to the gym, not every day, but most days. And I think that sort of helps. I do a lot of writing. I write ABC123 about things, do you know what I mean? So I think that sort of helps me keep on track. You know, and, and just sort of being engaged, not just in, phys- in a physical sense, but online as well, through social media and, and what have you. So I'm not really sure what else I can say about that because, you know, I think my life is pretty sort of straightforward, almost verging on slightly boring. <laughs> because I think from the chaos that I used to, my life when I was running my charity in my 20s, was just insane. I used to sort of speak at conferences whilst I was still drunk from the night before. I can laugh about it now because it's kind of slightly rock and roll. So I live a very opposite existence to that now. I don't miss the old days particularly. There's certain aspects that I miss, not the drinking, obviously, but you know what I mean? So now it's very simple by comparison. Yeah. Simple. And less chaotic. Simple is certainly nice. I know that I always was confused, like a hectic, dramatic life as like a busy and good life. And I'm like, no, a good life can be yeah. just being quiet. Exactly. And I think I used to thrive on chaos. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think that was the thing. You know, I thrived on drama, thrived on chaos. Do you know what I mean? And I think it partly, you know, I spoke numerous times, you know, trauma therapy, for instance, and I think I'd realized and had trauma therapy quite soon after a detox. So that's a really important point. So that really sort of embedded, you know, my recovery moving forward and addressed the underlying issues. You know, it turned out I had CPTSD, for instance, and that's always been the case that that became apparent. But the point I was making is I think it just sort of helped streamline all of that and, and yeah, just keep moving forward. For sure. And what inspired you to write about your journey? Well, I threatened to write a book for years, and originally it was going to be on eating disorders recovery. And I thought, do you know what? I spent 10 years just banging on about men with eating disorders, which was really important to do my work then. But I just, I do think forwards, not backwards. So it's quite ironic that written in memoir, which is pretty much looking backwards. But I sort of said to my doctor at the time when I was in detoxing, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be called Smashed, and then it became Smashed Not Wasted. And I did write that book, and I don't know what's happening with that book, if I had to be honest at the moment. There's a possibility it might not actually happen, and I'm perfectly okay with that in a weird sort of way, if I had to be honest, because I think I probably realised maybe I'd just written that book to help me get my head around what I'd actually lived through. Do you see what I mean? Not, it may not be at this time quite ready for public consumption. And uh, But the point is, you know, that just helped me sort of really understand the traumas and that relationship that that has with addiction. And yeah, it's pretty comprehensive in that sense. And yeah, I, I mean, I make no secret of the fact, you know, it involves sexual assault, for instance. You know, that was about eight years ago now. I think that was probably my tipping point rather than my starting point, if you see what I mean. It was the very last sort of significant trauma that my brain could cope with before it sort of went into sort of, well, just a state of chaos, really, sort of systems meltdown. And of course, by that point, I was really drinking. So that was sort of just enabled that to sort of, yeah, just get worse. So, yeah, I'm not really sure how to explain that question because I think for me it was just really just helping me get around what the hell I've been through and just sort of make sense of it. And maybe it's just as simple as that. Yeah. And what would you say are one or two th- personal things you're either looking forward to or working on? I'm making a new book project that actually is about LG- it's about sex positivity from an LGBT perspective. And it's actually based in the 80s, 1989. It has nothing to do with addiction, if I had to be honest, but I think I'd realised a lot of my original issues if you like were the, the legacy of homophobia of, of the old days and we had this dreadful law here in the in this in the uk called section 28 which prohibited the promotion of homosexuality from margaret thatcher's times so the idea of if we promote 
you know, homosexuality in schools. It'll make every, all the gay, kids gay. It's this sort of attitude. And, of course, that was a legacy of HIV and AIDS and everything else. And I lived in that time period where, you know, I was really badly bullied and teachers couldn't do anything about it because they were fearful to do anything about it because of this poxy law. Of course, it did get revoked in 2003. I left school in 2002, so you can probably realise for yourself I was very damaged by that. So I suppose, in a way, the book Project is a result of that, one of the traumas, if you like. And just sort of exploring, you know, kind of like I mentioned earlier, the rebellious side, you know, that rebellious side of me that's always been trying to get out, but never, you know, sometimes I put it back in its box and other times I let it go for a run around. So I think it's just kind of exploring all of that, really, I suppose. The things that I'm looking forward to, I don't know, really. I mean, I, I really do take one day at a time. And it's such a cliche, and even I roll up my eyes sometimes one day at a time. But it is a lot of truth to that. And I think actually I can't think, because I get very overwhelmed quite easily, I can't think more than the next uh, the next day you know what I mean so I think for me I think that's a PTSD thing about it, to be honest so I think for me I, I can't think too far ahead so I just look forward to, to whatever I've got to do that day like talking to you or going to the gym or whatever and just really be focused on the present I know that's also another cliche but they're cliches for a reason because they probably work yeah. and there's a bit of truth to that so you know what I mean so I think at the moment I try not to think too far ahead I know I realised this year that actually a lot of things that I planned to do have not happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the book I mentioned earlier, for complicated reasons, it might not happen. So I think I'm realising now not to sort of make any assumptions, have no expectations. Do you know what I mean? And I think I was probably six months ago, I would have been able to say, this is what the next six months will be, like as if it was set in stone. Now I don't think like that. And that's a very recent thing. So I don't know. I, I, I suppose I just don't think too far ahead. And also you can't in these days. I mean, we live in the most turbulent times. I know what it's like in the States. <laughs> but here we're sort of say, getting the you, of it now with a really bizarre, bizarre regime that makes me think, oh, my goodness gracious, you know, it's like, you know, a first world country turning into a third world country is really, really bad. And so nothing surprises me these days. So I, I try not to sort of plan, think too ahead. And, and just draw a little line about myself. You know, I don't know what you call it, but, you know, a little line that separates that's that's the world this is me and you know what I mean? Just yeah. very clear on that. Otherwise I think I would lose the plot. I can certainly relate to that. As, as you were talking about like with the school and not being able to promote, I live in Florida right now and it's very much no, that, the don't yeah. say gay and all that. So I was like, Oh no, it's like our politicians read like a UK history book and they're like, that's a great idea. Well, we're learning from each other. I mean, we're just as bad as one another in the UK and the States. I don't know. I think it's just trying to make sense of some of this stuff. And it's quite funny. One of the things I also said numerous times, and I've said it in an article that's coming out soon, that when I detoxed, it seemed like the world was a relatively stable place by comparison to how it is now. What I was drinking, I should say, it was a relatively stable place. And the whole time that I've been sober, it's just been chaos. It's like sweet role reversal. So, and I did write a whole article on that for Asylum magazine. And I just sort of thought it was a really important point to be made. How on earth do you sort of manage sobriety and recovery? Of course, there's a big difference between sobriety and recovery. But how do you manage all of that in these turbulent times? And I think there was a really important point to be made just about that. You know, let alone anything else, just how do you sort of navigate in these crazy times? Yeah. And like I said earlier, I started recovery just before the pandemic. Nobody knew anything about that. So it's always, yeah, and I do see the amusement in it all, as you can probably tell. You know what I mean? The irony, the humour, all of it. There's no other option, really, I don't think. Yeah, excellent. Well, how can listeners find and follow you to connect? Instagram and Twitter and, oh, the new one, Threads as well. And I forget what my my username on Instagram, I think, is samthomas8186. 
I hope. And Twitter, it's Sam underscore Thomas 86. All right. I will confirm them before putting them in the show notes. So listeners, yeah. you can click on over. And also, I've written a whole ton of articles now on, on recovery, which is on my link tree. So my story is there. I probably mentioned lots of different points that I've written about. So yeah, all of that is there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. Stick around because we'll have our post show for the patrons, but it was a pleasure getting to know you better. Thank you for having me. Yes. And listeners, thank you for tuning into another episode of Gay A. Follow Sam and follow us while you're at it at Gay A Podcast. And follow us wherever you're listening right now so you can get these new episodes when they come out every Thursday. Until next time, stay sober, friends.